Hello, this is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger, in this week's episode of the podcast number 179. Right now, we are doing a massive social experiment of normalizing remote work. The emergence and spread of the COVID-19 virus has upended societies and economies around the world. And just one sign of the impact of the virus, the U.S. Congress this week is voting on a $2 trillion, with a T, dollar bailout for families and businesses in the U.S. that have been idled by quarantines and lockdowns, efforts to control the spread of COVID. Even those whose work hasn't been shut down or ground to a halt as a result of the virus have found their work life transformed. Offices are closed and tens of millions of Americans are telecommuting, some for the first time. Security firms have been quick to jump on that change, talking up the cyber risks of telecommuting and remote meetings. But how much of that is marketing hype and how much is real? To get a sober assessment, we invited CISO and IEEE member Kane McLandry into the studio to talk about the variety of cyber risks that remote working introduces. In this conversation, Kane and I talk about how companies can best recognize and manage the cybersecurity risks that have arisen in our new normal. I started out by asking Kane, who's a resident of the city of Seattle, a COVID-19 hotspot, how he's managing during the outbreak. Kane McGladry, member of the IEEE. You know, we're in the midst of this uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, many of us are uh, working from home. I guess, first of all, tell us uh, what your work situation is now amidst this uh, outbreak and how you're connecting with your workplace. So the uh, city of Seattle, and along with the rest of the state of Washington right now, is actively interpreting the governor's orders to stay home and stay safe if you don't work in an essential business. And the team that I serve at uh, Pensar, um, where I'm the CISO, the security team is uh, definitely um, hard at work, primarily remote, with the exclusions of those things that have required us to be uh, on site in order to, to do things. A lot of our operations, however, uh, were moved um, to the cloud, primarily because in Seattle, somewhere between right now and 300 years from now, we're going to have the big one, the big earthquake, that puts everything <laughs> into the bay. And yep. it was my belief that building a data center or doing anything on premises would not be a good idea on that basis of risk. And while I'd certainly like that big one to be uh, further out, I think in the future would be favored, actually. Um, it's really informed a lot of those policy decisions and strategic decisions around data residency and, and server location. Uh, and so the ability to work remote was uh, was prime in my mind. Um, and it's it's turned out uh, fortuitous for us in this uh, uncertain time. And, and Seattle, as we know, is uh, one of the kind of COVID-19 hotspots. You're a little bit ahead of the rest of the country, although uh, New York seems to now be the um, epicenter of this in the United States. But um, what what's uh, going on out there? What's like life out there? What's like life? What's life like out there? <laughs> it's it's different. It would be un. Um, I wouldn't be able to say it was the same. It's it's different, and I think we're all learning to adapt to this. For a lot of the the team that I serve, their work can be done remotely effectively, and it's just a question of the them learning the nuances of of working remote. Um, somebody like a mechanical engineer, by comparison, might have to work on a physical object. Um, so that's been a little more of a challenge for them, but it's not insurmountable. 
So you were able, your organization was able to kind of make this transition to remote work, not without without too many hiccups. In other words, you had you'd already been doing it in various degrees, maybe not as extensively, uh, even before the COVID uh, outbreak. Well, it's certainly been disruptive, and I I think a lot of people who have not worked remote previously are finding this to be disruptive. Um, I've had the great uh, fortune of working remote primarily for twenty. 20 plus years now, I think. And so for me, it's been a normal transition. For a lot of individuals, though, I think they're struggling with understanding the best way to work at home, especially when their spouse or their significant other may be working at home as well, or their kids, in a lot of cases, are forced to be home because there is no school. And I think that's causing a lot of unexpected and unanticipated challenges for families and individuals. So let's talk about the let's talk about the sort of cybersecurity implications of this because of course in addition to being a Seattle resident you're also a cybersecurity expert when we think about and there's been a lot written that this is going to increase you know cyber risk that there have obviously been um, some covid-19 coronavirus themed you know phishing attacks and and that type of stuff but what do you see as the biggest sort of cyber risks that go along with remote work and also this particular environment that we're in the sort of pandemic everybody's kind of quarantined at home uh, um, situation i think the first one that comes to mind is accidental data exfiltration and that can take the form of working from home on a laptop or a similar screen, and you're just doing whatever it is you do for a living, right? You could be trading stocks, you could be designing models, you could be programming, whatever. You're working on some client confidential or sensitive data. And unintentionally, through no fault of their own, because you don't have a dedicated working space, your spouse walks by or uh, one of your children walks by or, um, you know, somebody who's not cleared in to, to see those data is able to observe that. Um, and that's that's kind of a, it, it feels like an existential risk. But let's say that you're working on something really neat. Maybe you're working on a really cool toy design and it's the new thing that's going to be shipping out at, at the holiday season for 2020. And your teenager is kind of bored and kind of on Reddit and thinks, wow, look at what mom's designing. I'm going to take a photo of that with my smartphone. And I'm going to post that to Reddit and I'm going to get points because it'll get upvoted. And all of a sudden you have a data breach. That's not good. That's the kind of thing that's at a policy level. If you were working in an office, you wouldn't have that problem because if you're working on something that top secret, whether it's a toy or whether it's a, I don't know, military weapon system, you'd be in a space that's been cleared for that and everybody around you is not going to do something like that. And so I think the, the first real best practice here for employers and also for employees is talk to the people that are around you, especially if you don't have a dedicated work office with a door. You know, just tell them, hey, don't look at my screen. Don't take photos of what's on my screen. It might sound pedantic. But there's a potentiality for downstream data breaches as a consequence of this level of working from home, because as a society, we're not normalized to this yet. Yeah. And those bored teenagers really add a uh, chaos element into all this, don't they? Yeah, they do. And they, they mean well. But what are you going to do? Ground your son for causing a data breach that loses your company reputation? There's no there's no administrative control there. So it has to become a, a, you know, a mutual understanding of, hey, when I'm working on this thing, don't look. And maybe that's probably not the best way to tell it to a teenager because that would increase their curiosity. But I think that's a, a conversation every family has to have. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind really around cybersecurity risks is the temptation to use your personal devices to do company work. So uh, for companies that 
already had laptops deployed commonly and for companies that already had a, a semi-mobile workforce, maybe people have a, a, a work phone and a, a personal phone, or maybe they've got a shared phone and they've got a, a work laptop, this is less of a risk. But for those organizations where they have not deployed laptops widely, or maybe they have, but the laptop is kind of a junker and it's not that great. You really have to weigh that risk of allowing an employee to connect their personal home PC to your network, whether via VPN or whether via, I don't know, Office 365 or box sharing or file sharing. Uh, And that also poses a material risk at a contractual level and at a regulatory level, let alone the technical level, right? Like, you know, you could say, well, maybe they've got malware on their personal computer and those data get exfilled. Let's back that up a few steps. Do you have a policy in place that explicitly requires employees to use work-issued devices that have been appropriately secured or not. Because if you don't have that right now, boy, that's a good policy to start with, because this is the kind of thing people are asking about. Can I work from, like, maybe somebody's got a smart TV at home and they want to know, can they connect their smart TV to their work laptop? Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? No, it's, it's not bad. It's a policy question. Can they use their gaming rig that they've got at home, which is super great and it's so fast and they've got this good keyboard and they've got this great ergonomic setup or do they have to use this terrible work laptop that they've got? Again, it's a policy question. And on a a third policy question as well, companies that are allowing individual users to install their own software so you haven't um, removed administrative permissions from user space to uh, prevent people from installing their own software, do you need to make at a policy level a policy statement of, hey, yes, install this or hey, no, don't install that? And that's something that every business has to start considering. So a lot of people obviously are doing a lot of remote meetings uh, these days with Zoom or GoToMeeting or Skype or what have you, Google Hangouts. These obviously are pretty mature platforms at this point. People have been using them for, you know, many, many years. They're very widely adopted, but maybe not used quite as extensively as they're being used now. Any thoughts on that? I know there have been some stuff written this week on, you know, backdoors and other things in Zoom that people are worried about. Um, Should folks be concerned Well, to the extent that they're concerned about the cybersecurity of remote meetings, should it be the platform they're concerned about or other stuff? So I'd be concerned about a couple things. The first one would be on a lot of meeting platforms, it's possible to set up a meeting and and set a password and then never change that password ever. And so the password is kind of a known shared secret and it's never changed. Um, And the risk associated with that is that somebody who's no longer an employee of your organization or never was an employee of your organization, maybe they were a vendor or a supplier, that they or somebody who has access to that meeting link and that that password joins a meeting. And in today's meetings, there are some really big online meetings happening right now where the participant list is like, you know, if you're doing a team stand-up or an all-hands, you got 50, 100, 200, 1,000 people on your web meeting, you're not going to go through and check and see who everybody is on there. And that's a great opportunity for a threat actor who has that access to be able to listen in and more so if they, um, if you as a meeting organizer have not disabled recording controls, it's a great opportunity for them to be able to record the audio or better yet, if you're doing screen sharing, to record the screen and then have a, a, a recording they can take with them. Um, the other thing I'd say is from a, uh, from a regulatory perspective, certain regulated industries require end-to-end encryption if you're using chat service or if you're using a voice service or if you're using a 
um, a video service. And what that means is that the service provider doesn't have the encryption keys. So if you're sending a chat message and there's a search feature, that search feature is probably being provided by your uh, provider that has an ability to decrypt your chat messages so that they're searchable. It's kind of a convenience, but that also means it's probably not end-to-end encrypted. And if you're working in, and I'm thinking like, um, I don't know, the DOD supply chain comes to mind. If you're working in that space where end-to-end encryption is a requirement for secured communications, you then have to ask your service providers, hey, is is that what we're doing right now? If it's not clear by their documentation. Uh, And also possibly, um, depending on the technical aptitude and the drive of your team. You know, there's the old adage of whoever got fired for a cybersecurity incident versus whoever got fired for not doing their job on time. I think that people are well-meaning. They're trying to innovate solutions. They're trying to stand up stuff that has not been stood up before. And they're choosing the thing that works for the problem they have right now. And they're not looking at the compliance associated with that, which could lead to regulatory and legal risk for organizations in those regulated industries. Now, if you're in a less regulated industry, the second one's probably not a concern. But again, those long-lived meeting URLs and meeting passwords and dial-in numbers, that is a material concern. And I've noticed, I mean, depending on the platform, sometimes even in small meetings, you know, the way that the UI is configured, it can be hard to see everybody who's on the meeting, you know? I mean, you've you've got a list of, you know, icons, you know, maybe some of them are just uh, letters or default avatars. And um, so it it, it can be easy to hide, I think, even even in a small uh, online group meeting, if you're you're, um, clever about it. That's very true. I think the other thing that comes to mind is a lot of people are working over their VPN right now. This is not so much a security concern as it is an operational concern. If you're running your webcams and you're running your video chats and your screen chats and your voice calls over your VPN, uh, that becomes a choke point. And I have spoken with organizations just in the past week that are moving their staff to shift work because their VPN can't keep up. and it's surprising because, you know, I've, I've heard of companies that have only got enough capacity for 20 to 30 percent of all of their end users, whether it's VPN licenses or whether it's actual physical bandwidth, where they're they're forcing people to say, look, you've got a shift now. You can't work eight till five. You have to work five till midnight because you need to be on our VPN to be secure. Uh, I can't say people are really enjoying that. Kind of one in, one out rule, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think that's an opportunity for us as cybersecurity leaders to evaluate which of these services do you need to be on the VPN for? Like, um, you don't want to, to pull like uh, NMCI, uh, sorry, Navy Marine Corps intranet, which recently put out an edict saying, don't stream YouTube and Spotify on our intranet here, folks. That's that's not good. Uh, that's not appropriate military usage. But at the same time, I think organizations have to look at that and say, at a network engineering level, what is uh, the behavior on your network, especially if you can't do split tunneling, where you can say, hey, send traffic that's for Spotify or for Pandora or for another streaming service. Don't run that through the VPN. And then for those video services or those chat services, those online communications platforms, if you support split tunneling and if it's okay from a regulatory risk perspective to not run those traffic over your VPN because you've either got a compensating control of end-to-end encryption or you've got uh, less of an encryption requirement that, uh, you know, man in the middle uh, decryption is not a problem. You know what? Don't run that over your VPN. 
because if you are, you're you're really making it harder for people who do need high bandwidth that um, do need to have traffic going over that VPN. It seems inevitable that this pandemic is going to bring about all kinds of different changes in perspective, changes in policy, um, and so on. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what changes you see coming after this uh, is all you know, in the history books, both in terms of uh, technology use and adoption and, and also maybe on the sort of cyber risk front. So I, I think on the adoption of technology, right now we are doing a massive social experiment of normalizing remote work where uh, managers who believe that the only way to effectively manage is if they can reach out and pinch somebody, or the old managing by walking around that was so popular um, back in the 80s and 90s, I think that they are going to have to look at their opinions and examine those and decide, is that still a relevant way of thinking based on their experience during this pandemic. I think that also families are going to have to look at this too and individuals and say, hey, was this a good thing or was this not a good thing? Was I more productive? Was I less productive? And what did it do to my um, sleep schedule? What did it do to my work schedule? Uh, I think that's a really interesting social question. Um, I believe that in a lot of industries, folks are going to find that uh, it was possible to successfully work remote and then it was possible to be effective. And I, I'd encourage uh, business leaders really to look at productivity metrics during this time and find out if people were more productive during this time or if they were just putting in hours, but they were putting in hours because they were troubleshooting the darn thing because it didn't work. Uh, and I think that those organizations that say, you know what, hey, we were pretty productive during this might start evaluating remote work as becoming less of a privilege, less of an exception than it has mm -hmm. been. I think from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, there's not a lot new here. Threat actors for years have been using media events to build compromises and to build marketing campaigns or phishing campaigns, depending on your perspective, and using that to motivate people to click or to respond to an email. I think that the difference here is the magnitude and the size of the crisis. This is not a regional crisis. Like if you're a threat actor and you know there was a hurricane somewhere, you can send a pretty effective phishing email to say that, hey, I'm from the American Red Cross and click here if you'd like to donate to this hurricane relief fund. On something which is a global pandemic, it certainly makes it easier for them to spray and pray and to just hope that they've hit the right target rather than having to be a little more regionally targeted. Um, I would say, I would say that cybersecurity teams that are um, doing simulated phishing and simulated APT behavior against their own infrastructure and against their own employees, now might be a good time to tap the brakes. I'm not saying stop, <laughs> but I'm saying given the workload and the stress load and the amount of alerts that are currently popping, you might want to scale that one down for the next, I don't know, two weeks, maybe a month, because uh, otherwise we're going to get some serious burnout issues. Adding insult to injury, as the saying goes. Kane McGladry of IEEE, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was really great uh, having you in to the studio. Paul, it's been a real pleasure. And if I just can, IEEE.org on Twitter. That's the IEEE. And if people want to learn more about me on Twitter, I'm at uh, Kane McGladry uh, on Twitter. Kane McLandry is a CISO at Pensar Development and a member of IEEE, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. He was here to talk to us about COVID-19 and the cybersecurity risks of remote work. 